someone I know we both appreciate Nikki Glazer. Uh, I've talked about her so much on this podcast, but she, hi, uh, Nikki. <laughs> hi Nikki, if you're listening, bestie. <laughs> Welcome to Peking. I'm Jess, your host, and maybe even your new best friend. And on each episode of Peking, through conversations with my guests, myself, and my listeners, I'm going to be exploring those low moments in life that are actually our greatest chances to peak. It's the podcast I've been missing, and I have a feeling I'm not the only one. The type of self help that doesn't take itself too seriously. This is Peking. Welcome back, fam. I missed you. I missed my booze. And I'm going to miss you for a while now because this is actually, if you can believe it, my last episode of the season. I know I've been trying to mentally prepare you and really mentally prepare myself and emotionally prepare myself for the fact that this is the last one. It's going to be nice to have a break. As I've talked to you guys about before, it can be draining to put this all together So I'm looking forward to being able to take a step back and kind of like, you know, look back on this and see what I want to do differently, what I want to do better, what parts of it I don't want to do at all. I'd love to talk to you guys about that type of feedback. So it'll be good to take this break, but it is bittersweet. It's been something that I've been able to put some energy towards and some creative thought towards and obviously a lot of emotion in for the last few months this whole summer and it's definitely a defining piece of my summer so thanks for being along for the ride through all the trial and error I learned a lot about just podcasting in general something that I've really wanted to do and try out for a really long time and I also cheesy as it is this is peaking we get a little cheesy here I learned a lot about myself and that was kind of the goal so anyway I'm excited to be closing out the season with a really good episode. It's actually the longest episode I will have for the show. I think that's appropriate for the finale, and I think it's appropriate for the topic that we're covering. But before I get there, wanted to give a few shout-outs looking back on this first season. So first of all, all of my guests, Sarah Schwartzchild, Kate Berman, Drew Corbett, and now my guest for this episode, Josie Callahan. I cannot even begin to describe how grateful I am that you all were so open and honest and vulnerable and willing to dive in really deep into your peaking journeys on a bunch of different topics and in a bunch of different ways with me and share that with our booze here on, on the show. Like that's really special. I think something that felt challenging to me when I first started the podcast was how do I find people who are going to be willing to do this like even though I'm a person that's weirdly willing to be really open and vulnerable with strangers uh, and with a wide audience I don't expect everybody especially people who are just you know friends and family and people in my circle to be comfortable doing that and so the fact that I had those four guests on and we really got heavy and got into it together is It's very special. It's an honor that they trusted me with that. So thank you all for being so open with your stories. I also want to shout out Spite Candle Company. That was my 
presenting sponsor of my first episode and then also I had one other ad for Spite I think in episode five. I'm not sure whether the promo code is still live or not but it was all caps peaking pod on their website spikecandleco.com. This is not even an ad that they asked me to do. I'm just throwing it in here in case that promo code's still live. Even if it's not, still go check out their candles. It really honestly meant a lot to me that a friend of mine was interested in promoting what he's doing on this show. Because a lot of my motivation when it comes to working on different projects is working with other people. And a lot of the times with peaking, because it was just me doing this, I felt like I was kind of missing an accountability partner a lot of the times through this journey. So to have accountability in the form of a sponsor for a couple of my episodes really helped me and motivated me and made me feel like this was more of a real thing. So I'm grateful for that. Spike Candles, they're awesome. Suede Jacket's my favorite. Bonfire is also really great. Larry's Latte is also really great. They're actually all really great. Next, somebody who gets a million shout outs in like my day-to-day life and on this show, Nikki Glazer and the besties that came over from her podcast, the Nikki Glazer podcast, and started to listen to Peking and follow Peking on Instagram. That, that story was insane. Like the fact that I met her and talked to her and then she gave me that whole spiel on one of the episodes of her podcast was insane. I sometimes when I'm having a bad day, like go back and listen to it and remind myself that that happened because it feels very surreal. She's somebody that I truly listen to every day and like consume her content and think about her comedy and think about things that she talks about on her show and all of that every single day. So the fact that she was aware of me and shouted me out at some point is really, really cool. If you somehow don't know that story, I think I told it in the beginning of episode four. That was huge. That was a milestone I wanted to remind myself of in this intro. And I wanted to just say thanks for people who stuck around after her introducing you to me and this show. And finally, obviously, my listeners, my booze, my fam... You really are mostly made up of family and friends, but that network goes so far and so wide, and I'm honestly very amazed by it every single day. Like, there are people who I love and care for and have been in my life at one point or another, but who are not, you know, regulars in my life, who have reached out that they are listening and that they're loving what I'm doing here. People I went to high school with and college with and friends of friends and family of friends and so on and so forth. So that's been one of the coolest parts of this is that I've been able to reconnect with a lot of people and over topics that are not, you know, just your your everyday small talk. So I love that people are into kind of the big talk that we're doing here. I actually, by the way, I have looked into whether that exists as a podcast, big talk or like Large talk is not the same. Huge talk, I don't know. I should look at different variations of how to say that because I think a podcast that's like the antithesis of small talk would be kind of cool. Don't take this idea from me, by the way. Okay, anyway, all of this leads me to just introducing my guest for today. She's someone who has been a friend for the last, I think, six, seven years I don't know math, I think seven years. I I probably met her in 2014 and I met her through my ex, the person I was dating at the time. They, They were friends and I met her through him and she always struck me from when I first met her as a very creative, like beautiful soul who cared deeply about 
her art. She's a writer. She um, is a dancer. She'll talk about all of this when when we move over into her conversation. But she was always somebody who I was like, wow, she is so has so much to give in terms of creativity and art and also really somebody who cares deeply about the people in her life. And we knew each other for a long time through my ex, but never like really that closely, I would say. I mean, we we spent time together, but I, I would say that our relationship actually developed like a new level of closeness when my relationship with my ex ended. So she was somebody who was actually around for like our last fight. And I went for a walk with her the next day and was just kind of venting about what had happened. And she was just really compassionate and listened to me through that, even though I was venting to her about somebody who was her friend and she had known longer than me. And that walk that we went on really has stuck with me through these past several years now that that relationship is over. Something she said to me at the time that actually really ties in with some of what she's going to talk about in today's episode is I remember her saying, and I don't think I will ever forget, she just said, it's so painful when our loved ones disappoint us like that. And it just was like a really simple, straightforward truth to say. Uh, but I I needed to hear like somebody else say that to me at the time. I think I'll always remember her saying that to me on that walk. Anyway, then fast forward a little bit, that relationship ended and she was one of the first people to reach out and check on me from kind of like his group of friends. And she continued to check on me over the coming weeks. She bonded with me over the fact and kind of celebrated with me over the fact that Ariana Grande's Thank You Next album came out like the week after the breakup. And she was texting me about that. And we were just kind of laughing and sharing which songs we liked the best on the album together. And it really meant a lot to me that somebody who was quote unquote, on like his side of the story, like one of his friends was looking out for me in that way. That can be said about a lot of those people. I know some of you are listening to this and that means a lot to me too. Just like great people who you fear when a relationship ends or when changes are happening that you might lose those people. But if they were real connections, they will stick around and maybe they'll even grow into something different and better. That's another theme that's going to come up in my conversation on this episode today with this wonderful woman. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy it. It's really vulnerable. And um, yeah, let's jump in my conversation with Josie Callahan. Hi, Josie. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm so excited. I'm a big fan. That's a big honor to me. And I'm really excited because you actually reached out to me after hearing about peaking and kind of like volunteered yourself, volunteered the topic. And that was an honor for me, just that you'd be willing to open up in this space with me. And I think it's going to be a really awesome episode and something that a lot of people will, you know, take something from. And I'm certainly very interested in the topic myself. So before we jump into those things too much, though, I wanted to give you a chance to just introduce yourself. I like to ask kind of what are the things that matter to you? So your introduction doesn't need to be like a corporate introduction about what you do and like what your LinkedIn profile looks like, unless you want it to be Um, just kind of in general, who are you and, and what do you want listeners to know about you? Cool. Sounds good. Yeah. First of all, I what you said about um, me reaching out to you, I think that 
like vulnerability inspires vulnerability. So listening to some of your episodes, even where you just spoke from the heart and spoke for a full 30 minutes inspired me to feel comfortable reaching out to you about a topic that's definitely close to my heart. Um, so I think that kind of begins to explain who I am and what's important to me. Um, I love it. <laughs> uh, as you know, I uh, moved to Denver, Colorado uh, kind of recently, um, almost a year ago, but that's like dog years and COVID times. Um, so I live in the mountains. I moved from uh, Brooklyn, New York, where I lived for eight years. Um, who am I? I'm a writer. I'm a dancer. I'm a cat person. I value, um, I value my friends. I value genuine connections, honesty, good books, good food. I think that sums it up. Oh, and Taylor Swift. And uh, yeah, I'm a Scorpio. Oh, thank you for adding that. Yeah, anytime. I think that I like at one point knew that about you, that we were both water signs, but forgot. So it's a great reminder that that's part of our flowing connection. (laughs) Yes. No, Scorpio sun, Scorpio rising. So double Scorpio, which is a little scary and Aquarius moon. So, wow. That makes a lot of sense for you. (laughs) And I, I know that Scorpios have a certain reputation, but I actually, in my experience, Scorpio women are everything. Like I really connect with them. It's Scorpio. I also regrettably connect with Scorpio men, but Scorpio men are a mess. Yeah. They're a mess. Sorry, any Scorpio men. <laughs> if you're here and you want to like vouch for yourselves, guys, you can text me about it. But I've, I think my mind is already made up, honestly. Drake is one of them, but Oof, that makes sense too. That's, that's a loaded topic. Yeah. <laughs> that's another, another that's another episode. Well, thank you. That was a great intro. And I think you hit the nail on the head and that gives a good taste into kind of like who you are and, and who we're talking to. Um, so I'll just kind of move us right into the topic for the day. I know that, I mean, we were talking a little bit before we even started recording about kind of like unintentionally talking about peaking journeys that we've both been through with our careers and moving and writing and like a lot of stuff that we both have been through at one point or another. And I know that when listening to previous episodes, really where peaking resonated most for you was with your journey to sobriety. And so I know bits and pieces of that story from knowing you over the years, but obviously, you know, don't know all the details and all the kind of emotions behind it and decisions that you had to go through and peaks and valleys. So I'm really interested to jump into that with you today. And I'm hoping that you can just kick us off a little bit into kind of like, you know, the overall trajectory of that story for you, maybe where it started and we can go from there. Yeah, that sounds good. I guess I'll start by saying that in November of 2021, I will hope to have uh, four years of continuous sobriety. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah, which feels crazy to say that feels like a lifetime. Um, And it also feels like not a lot of time at all, but so much has changed. So I got sober, um, a month after almost to the date, a month after my 27th birthday and sobriety itself is a whole, has been a whole journey, highs and lows, everything that you just explained. And it was the beginning of, I think my adult life, to be honest. But I think in terms of like a journey, 
you know, a good, a bit of background for what led to that decision and what it took to get to that point, um, may help just have a little context. Um, so I was like a very high strung kid. Um, I went to Catholic school. I like prayed a lot. Um, I you're speaking, you're speaking to deep parts of me right now. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I have memories of like being in the second grade saying the act of contrition and just being like, I'm so sorry for my sins. Like, so I had a lot of anxiety growing up and I always felt like a little bit like different than or socially awkward or shy. And I was also like an intense child. Um, I, I was an Irish dancer. I ended up touring professionally. I cared deeply about that sport. And instead of going to parties in high school and like trying my first beer or kissing boys, like I was in the dance studio perfecting my craft to a level of like obsession. So I didn't start drinking until the year I went before I went to college or the the year I went to college the summer before. Um, And pretty much the second time I got drunk, I blacked out and was like, I can't do that again because I couldn't show up for dance class the next day. I couldn't like, it was, it really hit me. And I, my first like two years of college, like I kept that like on lock. Like I knew what happened when I picked up a drink and I was scared to have that happen again. Long story short, um, I left school to tour professionally with a dance company. Um, and that ended in a lot of like emotional, uh, (laughs) uh, trauma and heartbreak where something I loved deeply became something like very stressful and kind of masochistic. Um, and I ended up having a career ending injury. And so I went back to school and I like, didn't have this like one thing that like kept me like so tightly wound and so together. I had been in like my first serious relationship. I had ended that. And so it was just like, all bets were off and I wanted to have fun. And I felt like I deserved to have fun. And the last like year or two of college was a lot of fun. Um, and from the outside, I think like I just looked like a normal college party girl. Like, I don't think, I think I was like kind of out to like, I'd been the good girl my entire life and so hardworking and focused and a type a that I felt like I kind of wanted to prove people wrong and like let loose a little bit. Um, but for me, like when that switch was flipped, um, I couldn't turn it off. Most of my nights that I would drink ended in a blackout where the next day, like people would be telling me like what I did, who I kissed, what I said. And I would be like, that doesn't sound like me. Um, I had the nickname of Ursula because I, um, I don't know if I told you this story, I don't know that, but I blacked out at a pool party, um, uh, at a friend of mine while I was like in hot pursuit of like a guy I was talking to. And apparently I like, like crossed the pool, like very dramatically, <laughs> like n- no lights on in the house. Like, and, uh, one of my friends called me Ursula, the sea witch. Cause I was mm-hmm. also like a bit of a witch that night. Yeah. So, you know, college ended friends, I, you know, 
who once like partied super hard, like got jobs, got apartments, got relationships. Some like got married and I moved to New York and went to grad school, worked in bars and on the weekends and some weeknights would just continue to drink the same way. Um, so for me then, what, what was I like 21, 22 at that point, it was just another like five or six years of like an unraveling in a way. Like everything, every line that I said I wouldn't cross with drinking, I eventually crossed. I had said like, I would never try or buy like drugs. Like I crossed that line. I said, I would never like drink during the day, cross that line, would never drink at work, cross that line. It was just one after the other betraying the things I promised myself because those things in a way were um, important to me and how I viewed myself. As you know, I ended up working some pretty insane jobs that involved a lot of stress, a lot of travel and a lot of like really high performance and dealing with a lot of really difficult people. And those people aren't the reason why I drank the way I drank. I was like in active, I know people have mixed feelings about this word, but it was like active alcoholism and also under like very stressful circumstances. So, but I was like eager to blame like anything I was willing to like cut off anything but the alcohol because I could not picture my life without it. So I would like leave the job, leave the relationship, but like I would not stop drinking. And I remember like one day I was on like a train and I was dealing with like a really awful hangover after like a really scary night where I couldn't remember what had happened. And I was in another country and I put myself in like a really uh, dangerous position with people I didn't know. And I made a list in this book of like every bad thing that had happened to me or that I had done as a result of drinking. And at that point, I knew that if I wanted to one, survive and two, two, much less live, like if I wanted to live the life that I could be proud of and look myself in the eye and feel okay about myself and accomplish my like hopes and dreams, which I still had much less like survive. Like I knew I had to stop, but it still took me another year of trying to put it down. And this horrible cycle that was probably the hardest part that lasted about a year of me going on like dry spells of like, I'm not going to drink this month and not being able to do it. I'm not going to drink this week and not being able to do it. And even like, I'm not even going to drink today. And like, not being able to do it. And by not being able to do it, I mean like convincing myself it was okay. And that's like a part of how this worked for me or like didn't work. So eventually like it wasn't anything like special. Like I think like the title of this podcast is so interesting um, because I think to me, my peaking moment was probably my bottom. It was when I had just like hit my emotional bottom. It wasn't a morning of a particularly heinous hangover. It wasn't a morning after the most shameful thing I've ever done. It was just the same old shit. And I was fed up. I was done with it. I had had enough. Um, and I called the one woman who I knew who also did not drink. Um, she had volunteered that information to me after I was like 20 minutes to meet her for coffee one day with like a shattered cell phone. She had probably a suspicion about what's going on. And she told me that uh, she was in recovery and had been sober for five years, which I was like, excuse me, what? Like, you don't 
drink. A concept that made no sense to me at the time that I received that information was then like burning in my mind of like, you know, one person who you can call. Mm -hmm. So I called her and she um, helped me find my way into a recovery community of other people who wanted to stop or have stopped drinking. And that was on November 29th. 2017. Um, it's kind of where the story starts a long way of getting there, but, um, I have not had a drink or a drug since that's so, I mean, it's such an incredible story because like, I'm really happy you took us all the way back and gave us all the context on like who you were growing up and then how your relationship with alcohol progressed. Because I mean, just for me, I didn't necessarily know that context. And it's like very relatable to me. I also went to Catholic school. I also grew up very like type A focused on school, focused on the, like the things that I was supposed to do and didn't drink until I got to college and had some extreme experiences. Like my first year in college where I pushed it too far and cause I didn't know my limits and I wanted to, what you said about almost like proving people wrong and proving that I could be like cool too, or something like really resonates as well. But then, you know, what's interesting is how it got to a point, like at first, what, um, kind of kept you in check with it was having dance and, knowing that if you went overboard with drinking, you wouldn't make it to rehearsal and you wouldn't be ready for your performances and so on and so forth. Yeah. Something that mattered, something that mattered more, more got it. So then, because my question was going to be once you got to kind of like the real world adulthood at post-college and, um, had those really difficult jobs, they didn't have the same effect of like, this job matters more than my night out. It was actually like they were stressful environments that you didn't look forward to and didn't. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm just like processing kind of what you were sharing. Um, is that, is that the difference? I guess like dance was something you cared about more and that's why it kept you in check. But these like terrible jobs that you had for like the first half of your adult life were not going to be that type of boundary for you because even though it was work and you like, you know, had to do it, it was also like work that you hated and caused you stress. That's such a good question. And I think the best way I can answer it is that I did care about my jobs, but I was watching my friends and peers be able to like go to happy hour after work and still show up in the morning. Hmm. And I was also put in a lot of situations. Um, I work in the entertainment industry and I was put in positions where there were a lot of dinners with wine that you're not paying for. There was a lot of, um, champagne toasts, a lot of like happy hours, a lot of networking events that all revolved around drinking. And it wasn't that I didn't care because I did deeply, but it was like, I, couldn't just have one drink at happy hour or two. It was, it was like a, 
it was like all the defenses, no matter how much I told myself, like you are going to have one drink tonight. Like that's it. It's like a drink of alcohol just like opened up the door to like, just who knows what's next. Like, and like it kind of changed, like my priorities didn't matter anymore. It just became all bets were off. Um, and I also think like it was to me like a coping mechanism. Um, I definitely drank at things and like, because of things, um, and all of that is bullshit. Like I drank the way I drank because that's, I believe how my body reacts to alcohol. It's not because I'm not disciplined or I don't care about things. It's like, like some people, okay. Some people are allergic to peanut butter. Peanut butter makes them break out into hives. So they don't eat peanut butter. But the thing with alcohol is like, I know that my life goes to shambles when I drink it. But a part of the like allergy is I want more and I can't turn it off. So I think being in the stressful jobs to your point was like, people drink because they're stressed after work. I want to do that too. I need that relief too. I need my busy, guilty, obsessive brain to just for a second (laughs) so I can chill. And this is what I have to do. But unlike other people, one glass isn't realistic for me, wasn't realistic for me, no matter how much I tried. Yeah. Makes complete sense. Um, makes complete sense. I've heard that before from someone. I know we both appreciate Nikki Glazer. Uh, I've talked about her so much on this podcast, but she, hi Nikki, uh, <laughs> hi Nikki, if you're listening, bestie, um, we're, we're both besties. And, uh, she has talked about that, how like she almost envies now, now that she's sober. And maybe even at the time when she was making the decision to get sober, she noticed that difference in herself compared with other people around her and her peers of like, for whatever reason, for me, I can't just have a drink or two and like call it a night. And I'm like almost jealous or envious of people who can, but I'm also glad that I now know this about myself and now don't need, you know, just don't do it at all because that's what it becomes. And like the normal drinker, like, you know, like, like hats off to to you. Like I, especially my first couple of years of sobriety, I'd be at like a dinner. And if like a friend was drinking, like their wine slowly, I would be like, what are you doing? Like, come on, hurry up. Like, um, (laughs) it is like, like she was saying, like, I felt that too. Like, how is it that some of my friends can have one or two drinks or even get like drunk once a month or whatever. And for me, there's no off switch. Yeah. It's not ruining their lives, but like, it's destroying everything. I'm destroying everything in my wake. Um, when, when I drank. Yeah. And the other part, I mean, I don't know if there's more to add to this, but if there is, I would be interested in it. Uh, But the other part that really struck me when you were going through that whole kind of journey, getting to the decision to become sober, um, was you mentioning many times those moments when you kind of like let yourself down and Mm. broke a promise that you had made to yourself. So maybe it was maybe it was like a commitment that you had to get to a, I'm just spitballing like a workout class the next day, but then absolutely you didn't because you were too hungover or maybe it was a commitment to other things, to things actually related to drinking. Like I, I only want to have a couple glasses of wine tonight or, or you mentioned I, I am someone who will never buy drugs or 
whatever, like all these things that you had told yourself and promised to yourself, both related to like addictive habits and also like just in your life and your lifestyle that kind of fell through the cracks and fell to the wayside as a result of your relationship to alcohol. I I just thought that was, that really resonated too, because we all know that feeling of like not making it to the workout class because you're too hungover (laughs) and feeling disappointed in yourself. Like whether you're a person who has an addiction to alcohol or not, you know, that feeling. So there are only so many times soul cycle will refund you for your missed class. I crossed that line for sure. Yeah. 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 That was really, that is a relatable, that workout class thing is a relatable example. And like, you know, I had one of my best friends who's still my best friend to this day. Like, um, uh, I, you know, I thank her and thanked her for her honesty years later, but she, I called out of like a brunch or like a walk or just, I was supposed to meet her and I canceled for the countless number time for countless numbered time. Um, and she knew I was hungover, but I didn't admit it. And she said, I love you, but I forget how she phrased it, but she was just like, I don't feel that you're respecting our friendship by flaking on me and choosing alcohol over me. Mm. So like, I won't accept that from you anymore. And for a while, for a couple months, like my life just became pretty isolated because I was ashamed of the way that I was drinking and the shames that like people were catching on. And so I only wanted to drink alone or I only wanted to go to like the dive bar down the street after work. My world just got very, very, very small. And I was pushing people away who really just, they, they cared about me, but I felt like, oh shit, they see me. And I'm, I don't want you to see me because I'm ashamed of myself. Yeah. So it's both like letting them down is like, you know, you already knew you were letting yourself down in some respects. And then it becomes, oh, now I'm letting down people that I care about. And then it becomes, well, I'm ashamed to be doing that. And now I have to lie and hide my behavior. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And they they know you're lying right? and they're like, this is shitty. And I don't accept that. And I think the, one of the most beautiful things about my recovery and one of the things I'm most proud of is my friendships and the quality of my relationships and getting to repair those relationships. Um, not all of those repairs were like, and now we're better than we've ever been. Most of them are, but like, I have like a roommate who was like, okay, I hear you. Cool that you're sober now, but like, you know, we don't, we don't talk and I respect that. Um, I understand. Someone, sorry, just to clarify, someone who had been like negatively affected by your drinking, or is it a friendship that was based around drinking? And, you know, like, I feel like that's a common thing you hear when people stop drinking is like, I had to let go of some friendships because they were solely like drinking buddies and it was not healthy to continue those versus also repairing ones that had broken down because of you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, to clarify the person who I was talking about was someone who was negatively affected mm-hmm. by my drinking, which, um, you know, in the process of a couple of years of sobriety, I was able to make an amends to for my behavior and the harm that I caused her. 
but that didn't result in like, and now we're best friends. Like that was just like acknowledging what I did wrong and that I'm, I don't behave like that anymore and seeing if there was anything I could do to, to make it up to her in some way. Mm -hmm. But as for like friendships that had to be kind of phased out for the most part, like, I feel like my friendships have always been like quality over quantity. So it was kind of like a small group to begin with. Um, maybe some like larger groups were phased out in a way, but like my individual friendships, like the friend who called me out, for example, like that friendship is like one of it's still the one I value so much and our relationship is stronger than ever. Um, some friends, people that, that, you know, like who were drinking buddies in college, like our friendships have gotten to evolve and grow and have new experiences together, Mm -hmm. um, that don't revolve around alcohol. And it's just changed our relationships for the better. Um, I really don't feel like I've lost anything by not drinking. So it's hard to, I mean, if, if I was talking to you after a year, I would probably have like a different perspective on that. But even four years being the small amount of time that it is, it is enough time to have a bit of a zoom out to be like, I'm every, I have like repaired friendships and friendships have taken on a new, it's like a new chapter to our friendships. Um, as a result of growth, taking care of myself, I'm able to show up and be a better friend. And I've also made like new friends and could not have gotten through, especially the first year or two, um, without a community of sober people, um, who were also kind of fighting the same fight and giving me hope by seeing people who've done it longer, um, and working with other people in that. And it's important to me to note that, um, because I didn't do it alone, it wasn't possible for me to do it alone. I couldn't read a self-help book and fix it. I couldn't find like the way to like, what it, there's like a book that's like, like learning how to moderate. Like I tried to moderate for years. Mm. It wasn't like crystals or yoga or, um, smoothies or green juice. (laughs) It wasn't a diet. It wasn't like a, a dry month for me. It was like an upheaval of like everything I knew. And it was really scary at first. Um, and I could not have done that by myself. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's so important to call out and I'm also wondering, like at the time when you made that decision, was it something that you kept to yourself for a little while? Did you fill in close friends or family or I don't know, like how much did you communicate to people right at the start that you were doing that and you were getting sober and you were becoming a part of this community and like really focused on it versus how much was that start of your journey? Like just between you and the people immediately in that community supporting you um, before you felt comfortable, I guess, to share it with others. I'm, I'm just curious what that looked like. The honest answer to that is like, I was not in a good place when like I first made the decision and I didn't know if it was a decision that would stick, but like, this isn't the way I approach things now, but I was at a place where I was like, I kind of need people to get off my back. Um, so I'm going to tell my parents, I'm going to tell the roommate I was living with at the time was like a a very close friend and her boyfriend, um, of people who, who I loved, who cared about me. I kind of wanted them to know, like I'm doing something about this. 
but actions speak way louder than words. And it took a long time to, for them to believe that this was actually sticking. Cause I had said, I wasn't going to drink before in the past. Um, so they all needed time and evidence and yeah, just time to see if it would stick. And for me, I think, um, the first six months that I did not drink, um, I, okay. During the first six months, I shared about the experience way more than I would advise someone to just starting out. Although like I'm still sober, so whatever, like, um, but I got a job offer when I had 11 days of no drinking, which was the longest I had gone in like years. And I thought like, awesome. Like I deserve this. Like I'm sober. I can do this. I can take on the world now. And the job was really intense. It involved travel. It was all consuming. Expectations were unclear and very high and ever changing, which was like a staple of the jobs that I'd had in the past. And deciding not to drink anymore took away all of my coping mechanisms in a way. So instead, I just kind of felt like an open wound and I was getting progressively pulled into work more and in my like sober recovery community program way less. And someone in my life who was like helping me said, um, anything you put before your sobriety, you're going to lose. And I did not believe her. And within six months, I lost that job within six months. Like, like a guy who I thought I really liked, like, wasn't talking to me anymore. Um, my friendships weren't repaired or on the path to repairing. I was kind of just like showing up, blowing kisses at a couple, like meetings once a week, maybe, but I wasn't committed. I wasn't, I wasn't drinking, but I wasn't sober. And when I lost that job, it felt like another bottom. Like I felt like that was when I really surrendered and was like, I have to give myself to this in a way that I haven't Mm -hmm. before I find another job, before I get in a relationship. Like this has to be first because I don't know how to live right now without it. And I'm miserable, more miserable than I was when I was drinking. And a lot of changes happened. I started getting really involved in um, that community. I found uh, a sponsor. Um, I took advice and suggestions, literally anything that she or anybody with more sober time would tell me I, I did. I had to move out of an apartment I'd lived in for five years into like a small one that I could actually afford with my, with what I was making from like temp jobs. It was really a lesson in humility. And that was, I think like my true beginning. Um, because from there slowly I rebuilt and things started getting better, even though they had to get worse first. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's so interesting. I think about that concept a lot of like, maybe this thing that I know is going to make me better, whether it's like for you, it was getting sober for anybody. Like it could be any other thing in someone's life, like a change they know they need to make. Maybe that needs to come first before other things. Like I, I feel that a lot lately of like, there's 
there's a lot of things I want in life, but kind of like putting myself work first will beget all the other things I want, you know? Right. And so that just makes a ton of sense to me and resonates. And I'm just thinking like you had been, you had stayed sober and not drank for those six months before this new low happened. So it was more of an emotional low. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was an emotional bottom. And I think the truth of it was, and I heard this clearly in my brain while you were talking, but I think I was still hanging on to the hope that like something else could fix me. Mm. Like the right job could fix me. The right boyfriend could fix me. The right apartment could fix me. And it was like, I was just defenseless on how to manage stress, manage anxiety, manage heartbreak, manage anything without like my best friend wine and tequila and whiskey and literally whatever. Um, after that first class, like I needed to relearn how, how to like be a person, how to go on dates without alcohol, how to go out to dinner and order just water. Like what, like how to spend the hours of my day that I used to like, I didn't wake up on day one and now I'm a bright and shiny fixed morning person, you know, like yeah, it course. took a lot of time and like, this doesn't, this isn't totally congruent with what we're talking about, but I don't want to forget to say this. Like when I first it, like came into the recovery community, I felt like I was like at the like last stop on the block loserville. Just, I was worried it was going to be a bunch of like old men who smelled bad and smoked chain smoked. Yeah. And instead I met like some of the most like cool, creative, successful, ambitious, uh, people with really interesting lives and rich relationships. And it just was not what I was expecting at all. And I think like, I, it's like so funny, like the things that I thought I would miss out on by not drinking. And that felt like the end of the world to me at that point just don't matter to me anymore. Like I was so hell bent on like, and I said this in many meetings and I think people laughed and it is funny now, but I said like, so like, I just want, what if I like go to Paris? Am I not allowed to have wine in Paris? <laughs> what if I get married? What, what about when I get married? I can't have champagne at my wedding. And like, I had like $20 in my bank account. I wasn't going to <laughs> Paris. Like no guys were like returning my texts. Like I wasn't getting married. Like, <laughs> and some suggestion was just like, I think like a day at a time, like when you go to Paris, we'll worry about Paris. When you get engaged, we'll worry about your wedding. But like, you don't need to worry about that today. Yeah. That's you crazy lady. <laughs> I mean, I think my mind would go there too, though, because you start, it's like another form of making those excuses or telling yourself you can't do it. Like, even though in the present at that, at those moments, you hadn't had a drink for whatever amount of time you're like still grappling with, but this is forever. Yeah. And like, I also thought it was interesting how you used the word allowed. Like, right. If I go to Paris, I'm not allowed to have a glass of wine, which like, there's no police for sobriety. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. And the way it seems to change from just hearing you talk about this is like, now, if you go to Paris, you don't want one, you know, it's like, not, it's like, I'm going to go to Paris and enjoy like all these other things about Paris, you know, (laughs) like I've done the grand wine tour of Paris in my day. (laughs) And honestly, it was, 
like climbing the Eiffel Tower hungover and needing to like throw up. Like it wasn't great. Like I can't, I've enjoyed traveling so much more in sobriety. I get to do so much more. I, you know, like I could go on and on. Like I was so worried about like the social aspect of it. Um, And like you mentioned, like would friendships change or whatever, but end of the day, like no one notices if I'm drinking seltzer or diet Coke instead of a rum and Coke, but they do notice if I'm a blacked out asshole, like, (laughs) you know, like it's like, um, it was a small price to pay for like a second chance to like relearn things and live my life differently. Mm -hmm. And when you are referencing relearning things, what were some of the, like you mentioned, um, if any person from your community or if your sponsor shared with you like some advice or some tip or some thing to try to make this process, you know, get better for you and easier for you, you would try it. So what were some of those things? I'm curious, like what were some of the things that got you to that place of relearning and then eventually like the not finish line. Cause I know it's always like a process and a journey, but like to a point where you were like, I have relearned all these things. I can go to a wedding. Like I went to a wedding with you when you were probably a year out or maybe two of, of starting to get sober. And like, you know, you seemed fine. So like what, what were the things that got you to a point where you could go to something like that and be sober and be fine? Yeah. We had a great time. <laughs> I think like I actually, like when you were asking that question, all the rules, not rules, but suggestions I broke came Mm. uh, rushing in like, oh, you're lying. You said you followed all the advice. Like I I didn't do it perfectly at all. But, and every suggestion that was given to me was like, you don't have to do anything. Again, you're allowed to do whatever you want. You're your own person, but I've been through this. This is what I suggest based on my experience. I did the opposite and it caused me a lot of pain. I urge that you do this differently. Um, so like suggestions, like just as simple as like, go to a meeting every day. Just if you can make time for an hour to sit with other sober people and listen to their stories and connect with them. Um, what's an hour in my day. I used to spend hours drinking. Um, and I'd be like, well, can I go to a yoga class instead? And it's like, what? Like that's treating a different thing. Like, but those were the, you know, Mm -hmm. the questions I asked, um, hang out with other sober people. And it was hard at first to like sit and eat pizza with like people who I don't really know, but just being comfortable, learning to get comfortable, like just sitting with yourself and sitting with other people and, and having conversation, uh, asking other people what they do for work, what they like, like relating in a way that I hadn't in a while. Meditating was a suggestion that I still struggle with. Uh, but that is, that is great. I don't, I don't like, I'm not the biggest, like, I I can't really talk about meditations. I don't do it enough to like reap the benefits, but it is amazing how, when you do something consistently, you do, you know, um, it works. And by work, I mean, it helps me find that like quiet in my brain that I was looking for with alcohol. A big suggestion was don't date in the first year. And I just like 
for me kept like running up against a wall. Like with that, I forgot this is a podcast. You can't see that. I was just like clapping my (laughs) hands together. Like I was like running into a wall, but like it, it it really did feel like a collision course. Cause I was just like, yeah, but I'm the exception to the rule. I'm the exception to the rule. And it was just like, I was still approaching dating in the same way I had been before and, and I hadn't grown yet. Yeah. So it was like this weird kind of like time where I was like, I was changing, but I was like, I was like in a growth spurt trying to like wear old clothes or something. Uh-huh. Um, and I had someone very lovingly tell me like, you know, just trust that like the love of your life is still going to be there. If you give yourself a year to work on this, like, it, and she said, like, I bet, um, he will be different than anyone you've ever dated. Yeah. And that's very true. (laughs) He's very different. Yeah. Um, My partner, Nick is also sober. He has been sober for 12 years and he is different than anyone I've ever dated. And um, I'm really grateful for the quality of that relationship and the fact that it took some time to find that, to find him. Cause I wouldn't have been ready any sooner. Okay. I think in the kind of not wrapping up yet, but getting to those questions, like kind of looking back now, I, I think it's always interesting when talking to people about those peaking journeys, how, like you described earlier, the kind of moment when you were on the train Mm. listing all the things that had happened as a result, all the negative things that had happened to you as a result of drinking and then calling that person you knew who was sober and like that being a bottom, but also, and then that's how, that is how I describe peaking. It's like, it is when you're kind of at that bottom, but you're deciding to come out of it. But I think what's interesting is probably at the time, I don't know, did you feel that way at the time? Or do you only feel that way looking back on it, that that was your peaking moment? Because if it was your bottom, then like, you're not feeling great at the time. You're not feeling great about yourself. Did you have confidence in in yourself at the time? Like I'm making this decision and I'm going to get out of it. Like, Mm. or is that more now that you're looking back on it? You're like, yeah, that was the moment. I think the moment for me, the peaking moment for me, especially by your definition is, which I think is a great one, um, was actually when I had six months in And it was like, I had to make a decision. Like, are you doing this? Are you really doing this? Because if you're going to be this miserable, you may as well just drink again. Like, like, fuck it. So that moment of like, are you in or are you out? Mm -hmm. And I remember actually, like I had in the past gone to meetings and like criticized and point looked for all the ways that I didn't relate. And instead I went to a meeting and I just started bawling and I was like, I need help. I don't know what I'm doing. I miss, I think I cried in in the meeting and said, I miss wine. Like, like I, and I, I was like, I, I felt so lonely and I was just like, I need help. And like that, I think was the real moment to me. And even shortly after that, because I did start putting the work in shortly after that, I knew that that was significant. I had not experienced that surrender before, but I do think even that day one, six months prior, it was a tiny miracle to reach out and say, you need help. Um, I think it's important to say, and I really do want to say this as much as I can, like, and on this podcast, like, I think that there's a lot of stigma against, uh, alcoholism and the word alcoholic and the 
that to me, that's such a shame because it inspires shame. And like sobriety is like the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I think I probably, I, I don't know if I would have, who knows it all happened the way it was supposed to. And I'm grateful for it, but maybe I would have stopped sooner if, if the word alcoholic hadn't been shrouded in so much shame and judgment. And instead, like my sobriety is like the thing I'm most proud of. Um, yeah, I just think no one should be, I hope that anyone listening to this who's like questioning their relationship to alcohol doesn't feel like if I decide to stop drinking, does that mean I'm an alcoholic? Like, that's a scary word. Does that mean I have to stop drinking forever? Like to me, the answer is like, I don't know what's going to happen forever. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but like, I know today and for the last four, almost four years, I've chosen to be sober every day. And my life has just incrementally gotten better. Like there have been hard days and hard times and problems and loss. But the longer that I drink, I don't drink the, the median improves Mm -hmm. and I feel like I'm being my actual self. (laughs) Yeah. How do you think that you have changed as a result of this journey that you've been on and are still on? Um, kind of like you choose to be on every day, like you said, but how, how does it change the way that you approach other difficulties in life, other significant life changes, uh, you know, other battles within yourself? Like how have you grown just and applied that to other areas of life as a result of, of this? If, if you feel that that resonates. Yeah definitely resonates. I was just talking to a friend about how I've never had so much stability in my life as I have right now. Um, uh, just the power to like, to stay in something and find the things that are, that work for me and, and stick with them. Um, I've been at my job for almost three years. I've been in my relationship for two. We just have, you know, in a month we'll have been in our new house for uh, a year. Um, I wasn't someone who could stay before Mm. and be stable, but I think what I touched on earlier about that, like baseline okayness is the real growth. And it also has allowed me to be not only just like more focused and more clear about who I am and what I, I want my, you know, but I can extend compassion to other people and also to myself in a way that I couldn't before, because a lot of us are fighting silent battles. And I think up until the last couple months or the last year of my drinking, a lot of people wouldn't have, would have been surprised to know that I was suffering with depression, that I was self-medicating to the extent that I was. Um, but it's just, you know, instead of leaping to judgment first of someone or something, being able to extend some compassion to be like, I don't really know what's going on there. And the fourth or third final thing is just like perspective. Like I am a control freak And I think that if everybody just did things the way that I think that they should be done, there would be no wars. There would be no problems. Like, like I have all the answers, but getting that humility, that's like, maybe I don't, 
And also, even if I think my convictions are correct, I can't control 99% of what is happening in the world. 99.999. So just being able to, to focus on the small differences that I can make to improve my life, improve the quality of life of people around me, um, and not get so discontented by things that, and people that I can't control, just more of an acceptance for like people, family, yeah, politics, yeah, <laughs> things. Yeah. Yeah. And that like living, living in the day also has been really essential this past year and a half. Like, I think that with the stuff I've learned in my time sober really helped me feel grounded and supported and okay with uncertainty in a way that, um, what could have been unraveling in the past. Mm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Zoom is telling us that we only have a few minutes left. Thank you so much for creating a space where people can speak their truth. I guess like if, if anyone is struggling or thinking about their relationship with alcohol, um, feel free to share my social media info. Um, I'm always happy to clearly, I could talk about this stuff forever. Um, and I don't know what's best for, for, for you or for anybody else, but I'm happy to share my experience. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it's so exciting to be here. I'm so proud of you. And, um, I just think that you created a space that, like I said at the beginning, like vulnerability breeds vulnerability. If you want more peeking, make sure you're subscribed so you get notified whenever a new episode goes live. You can find peeking on pretty much anywhere that you listen to your podcast. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so on. Bonus points if you rate and leave a review. That would really mean a lot to me. And finally, follow peeking on Instagram at peeking podcast. I'm there every day and I'd love to hear from you. That's all. Thanks, fam. Although social media might become a like a drug of choice these days. Oh, sure. Like, there are others. You're like, I'm listening. I'm addicted to peaking podcasts, but like, yes, whatever. Totally. You're not on this. <laughs> <laughs>